thanks for joining us today for this chat. Uh, we're thrilled to really talk to you about the unique opportunity of designing, implementing, and, and sharing novel solutions to care for children and their families. Impact Pediatrics is a new consortium that's come together. Eight of the top 10 US News and World Report hospitals said, we're gonna come together to tell better stories, to cross-pollinate solutions more rapidly, and hopefully talk with people like you, those who have deep pockets and deep battery charge, to Stephen's points yesterday around making sure that we use the opportunity of the early decades in life to transform the health of our nation, but transform suffering kind of twice at one time. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. But ultimately, you know, I'm a general pediatrician. I'm the chief of digital innovation at Seattle Children's Hospital, and I'm a mom. I'm surrounded by parents to 10 other children, and many of you are parents yourselves. And there's Really, it's hard to pinpoint anything you care about more than the health of your loved ones, and particularly the health of children. But any time you're developing a solution that impacts a child's life, you typically are also duly decreasing suffering for a family member or a family at large. And children are uniquely positioned and are uniquely dependent. And I look at this from an ethics standpoint, that ultimately children are a unique, have a unique vulnerability that we often don't think about, and that is that they are subject to the decisions that their parents make. So if you think about that even in a vaccine space, we know vaccines are the best interest of a child's health. And if a child is living amid some caregivers or parents that determine that they're concerned about risk more than the benefit, that child loses the opportunity for that health benefit. So um, we're going to talk about those complexities and also hopefully those opportunities. And we really hope you join us in the effort. Um, we'll start this is Dr. Bronwyn Harris. She's a pediatric cardiologist. She's just out of her fellowship training, and she's the CEO and founder of Tuyo, a startup health company that she's going to talk to you about. Andrew Burns, who's CEO of Gobiquity, which is a startup health company, who also was the corporate um, uh, leader at Hippocrates for nine years prior to that. He'll talk to you about the experiences of developing um, a company that serves patients and families in the school system, in the home, in the ambulatory, and in the inpatient hospital environment. Um, Dr. Gil Perry is the, um, I want to get this right, Chief Strategy Officer at Children's Hospital Colorado, where he leads efforts and redesign in the partnership with Startup Health around making sure that innovation is happening and serving large land masses of children, parents, families, and communities. Um, and James Wall is a pediatric surgeon at Stanford Children's. He's also a bioengineer and helped um, create and lead and continues to support entrepreneurs, physicians, business students and consortiums in the biodesign program. He is also, you know how there are these people walking around with rock star stickers on the bottom of their badges? He's a real one. He's in a band called 2O Vicral, and it was his 40th birthday yesterday, and he was out late jamming. So um, we have some rock stars here, and um, would love to have them share the stories. Um, the hope here is we'll have a conversation, and of course we'd, I mean truly, if you want to interrupt or raise your hand or you know, stand up against something that we're saying, please do, and um, at the end we'll take some questions as well. So I want each of you, and we could just go down the line, and Bronwyn, you can start, um, to talk a little bit about I think all of us who go into pediatrics think about the profound long tail, that if you intervene in the first either prenatal time period, perinatal time period, or the first two decades of life is what we, how we design, you know, just define pediatrics, that you get the long tail benefit of effects throughout a lifetime. And so I want all of them to just give you some, some kind of ideas and energy that fuels their battery system of, of why this is where we believe you should be working for solution making. 
Yeah, absolutely. So lots, lots of examples of that long tail. One specifically would be asthma. There's data coming out now that if asthma is not well controlled in childhood, that you're significantly more likely to have COPD later in life. And I think that you know a lot of these type of impacts are difficult to study and to find, but really realizing that those changes that you make early on do have dramatic uh, life impacts and cost impacts um, in the future. Uh, in pediatric cardiology, there are lots of examples where the surgeries that we do or the procedures that we can do early on can allow children to then have a completely normal life. Um, so, you know, really focusing on that vulnerable period and being able to make a large difference. Yesterday, Bill McDermott talked a lot about uh, going into a, a space where it was underpenetrated, underserved, and pediatrics is something that I think I recognized uh, uh, from a personal perspective, but also from a business perspective, what is important about uh, the area of pediatrics and what we do in particular at my company is we look at vision impairment. The, 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 the statistics are overwhelming and the numbers are overwhelming. I'm, I'm analytical in, in, uh, in my thought process and when you think about it, there's 70 million kids in the United States, there's 1.9 billion around the world. And there's a lot of challenges around access, and that would be a theme today. And what we have seen, and what I see in the area of vision screening, is that so much of vision is around prevention, and the, there's a lack of access for that uh, early detection and prevention. And there's some compelling stats, not just uh, the fact that 80% of children uh, aren't screened until they enter preschool, but more compelling than that is that just disease states like myopia, which is nearsightedness, disease states like amblyopia, which is where you have, you lose uh, sight in one eye, they have long-term effects. Uh, amblyopia, for instance, has an annual impact of $23 billion in terms of income and quality of life on the U.S. economy alone. By preventing it early, you can actually avoid that long-term expense. You want to get me, I can opine on that, but go, Gil. Okay. <laughs> So uh, at Children's Hospital Colorado, we also think very importantly around the concept of health span. And so the return on investment from a perspective of how do we improve the child's health span long term, uh, we have 3 million kids in our seven state region that are relying on us. And so now is the time for us to partner with Startup Health and to identify ways that we can improve uh, the way we care for kids. Uh, at the end of 2015, we reconstituted our vision statement. And our new vision statement is Child Health Reimagined Realized. And the key thing is reimagining the way we care for kids is not just a tagline, it's a, a culture that we um, have, in, have infused within our organization. In a partnership with CU Innovations and Startup Health, we are now a hub that not only provides uh, opportunities from a child health perspective, but there's an adult partner with UCH and the School of Medicine that allows us to be a hub for innovation to rewrite the book in child health. And so now is the time. Uh, we're going to rewrite the book with child health and uh, look forward to working with you as potential partners. You know, and before you go, uh, James, I mean, I think the opportunity here too is that, I mean, we are like throwing ourselves on the table saying to you at Impact Peds, you have elite children's hospital and organizations. They have the reach of researchers, patients and families, and wholly dedicated staff. And we want to help really perforate the walls, bring in solutions, and in small scale pilots even, get you quality and safety data, access to the intelligence that's housed in the care teams, and the intelligence of patients and families who are engaged in those systems. And we want to 
get you the data that you need and then come to people like me and I will scream about it in every media channel I possibly can so that this happens faster. So anyone on this stage, but we'll also deeply connect it. We were talking yesterday that Jenna um, Hausman from Children's Hospital Colorado mentioned, you know, there are, 30, there are only 34 freestanding children's hospitals in this nation. We are all interwoven and inbred and we want to use and leverage that opportunity to say, hey, if I, if I hear something about biodesign or sleep intervention that Dr. Wall will talk about, I mean, I've known this guy since medical school and I'm going to send my, you know, someone his way right away and, and vice versa. So pediatrics is a, I mean, pediatricians are nice. <laughs> like really, pediatricians are really nice and different to the, you know, 50% of clinicians across this country who are burnt out. Pediatricians are not at that level. So we're up there with the dermatologists. We're pretty happy because we care for children and we care for families and we get to relieve suffering that comes from sleep disruption and the improvement of prevention of disease like, you know, mentioned yesterday by Joe Biden, the HPV vaccine that's an anti-cancer vaccine. We feel good at the end of the day. That guy cuts out tumors from kids and they live a normal life. So we like each other, we're kind to each other, and this collaboration is unlike any other that Impact Peach has done, which has said these elite hospitals are trying to take down the walls, cross-pollinate, share IRBs, and then talk to each other about exactly to your sake of we're writing vision statements and then we're gonna share with each other and with each other um, the even pilots that we've got. So, but we're talking about long tail, just to get us yeah, back. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll touch on it. So, you know, I, I personally as a clinician have always been frustrated that there's not devices developed for us, right? We do fetal interventions that can change someone's life for 80, 90 years, and we're kind of, you know, putting together things and getting exemptions from the FDA just to be able to try and do it. Nobody's building it for us. So, you know, take that to what's, how can we change that, right? So I think the things we try and do, or I think that can have an impact, is one, training the next generation of innovators, like Bronwyn, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I do believe you can train someone to be an innovator. Um, and two, with Impact Pediatric Health, I think, look, we've got to be realistic about the long tail, right? It's very hard to monetize that when you're building a business model. You're, you're forced to look at, at short term, and that can be done. You have to be realistic about the money you put in, the return you're going to get. Um, but I think you can build that model for pediatrics. And what we think in, in Impact Pediatric Health is the best we can do is decrease the market friction. So if we can get you on less money, two children with feedback, into clinical trials, and just have you not be scared about it. Everybody's so scared about doing, you know, a device for children, the FDA is gonna kill us, you know. It's not true, we, we've done it, we can do it. So I think that's the message, is that we understand there are market forces that are against pediatrics. We're trying to fight those by coming together as large institutions, working together and decreasing the friction for innovators, startup health, anybody who wants to come to us with a great idea to, to work through it. And we'll look at it at every stage from inception, clinical feedback, um, implementation, all the way to clinical trials. One more quick comment on the long tail. Um, most of you know that our healthcare uh, reimbursement landscape is changing. In the next three to five years, everybody on this stage and all the organizations are going to be incentivized to think differently about the way we care for kids. So the prevention arm of what we just heard today is going to be that much more important. And so we're going to be at risk for kids. So the more that we can partner with entrepreneurs to come up with solutions that save costs or keep kids out of the hospital, the better for everybody. 
Yeah, I, mean, I like what you talk about, about decreasing fiction and, and training innovators, because, um, you know, clinician leadership and clinicians at heart kind of go in, it's a, it's a fairly risk-averse career choice when you become a clinician. Um, and yet, you know, innovation, it kind of comes from this deep, welled-up, kind of bursting and brimming passion that comes, and I, and I think it can be assuaged by decreasing friction. So it leads me to think about, we, we want to talk a bit about um, the opportunity and the challenges associated with dual design. So to my point earlier of suggesting that each time that you create a solution, invest in, or iterate in the space of child health and wellness, you're also also decreasing suffering for a parent. So if you've had a kid, or you know someone who's had a kid, you know that when the kid is you know, sick, they don't sleep well. The parent doesn't sleep well either, right? So I think you're decreasing enormous taxing and suffering when you're thinking about the care, the care team that surrounds and the milieu that surrounds a child. That includes teachers, YMCA coaches, aunties and uncles and parents. And, and I think I'd love for you guys in particular to talk about both Tuyo as a kind of patient and parent-centered solution and the Go Check Kids, which is ultimately you know, a, a medical assistant, nurse provider, school nurse, and parent solution of how are you effectively decreasing friction for getting parent the knowledge that they need, right? Because kids are uniquely dependent on their child's decisions. When a parent has great information and access to it without a lot of friction besides calling and waiting to see the pediatrician and waiting in the exam room and taking off all your clothes so they look in your ear. You know, I mean, I think um, I'd love for you guys to talk about that dual design challenges and maybe successes. So. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Wendy. So Tuyo Health, we are able to provide objective indicators of asthma control on a daily basis. And we use this with physiologic monitoring. So a device that gets attached to the mattress, we can get parameters from the child, their heart rate, their heart rate variability, respiratory rate, and others, and then use that to assess their asthma on a daily basis. The gold standard right now, what it happens in practice is Parents are given an asthma action plan that literally just has three different boxes. A green box, you're doing great. A yellow box, you have mild, maybe moderate symptoms that are described you know, as uh, simply as some shortness of breath or some limitations in activity. This is that a piece are, of paper that like a dopey general pediatrician yeah. like me hands out and is like, okay, best of luck. Right? I mean, exactly. It, it's analog, exactly. And it's not, but it's, it's imperfect because it gets lost. It doesn't right. get followed. It doesn't and get faxed to school. It's as if, you know, for diabetes, you gave out a glucometer that said green, you're good, yellow, something's wrong, and red, something is really wrong, and that's it. And for some reason, for asthma, that's been okay. Yeah, that, that's the best we have. And so we're changing that paradigm in it. You know, I know my daughter has asthma, so not only I've seen the physician side where, yeah, you give this piece of paper and you, you know, hope that it's gonna work, and when they come back and you ask about symptoms for the last few months, you, you know they can't remember that. I can't remember that for my daughter. And then I understand how stressful it is every day to feel, well, I don't, I don't know, is the cough better today? Is it worse? Is this some limitation? Should I be changing the medication? So exactly by being able to give these objective measures, we are making the family's life better. Where the, the parents aren't having to pester their child. Well, did you run at recess today? Were you feeling a little limited? No, we actually can have objective indicators and you know take that stress out of the relationship that is already stressful to have your child have asthma. 
Can we, can we talk quickly about the dual designs in another way? So I guess one of my questions I'd love to hear from you is, how are you serving the pediatrician or the medical home while also serving the family with your solution? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, in chronic disease and exactly going to the, you know, moving more value-based care that we want to enable families to manage their child at home, give the plan, you know, and use the plan that the physicians gave. We're not at all replacing the physician. It now gives them better information when they're talking to their physician and a better understanding of when they should be talking to their physician, when they should be reaching out because their asthma isn't as well controlled as they might have realized. Wendy, can I just add yeah, one thing yeah, to this? Yeah, I, think, I, I think the theme here is enabling parents to manage the health of their children, right? I mean, it almost gets to autonomous parenting, not quite, but I mean, it, it really, you know, it, it enables them to manage that and that is completely unique. Right? That design challenge doesn't exist in adults, and we've had multiple teams through Biodesign that have designed for children recently, and that is one of the lead design criteria before you get to a solution every time is how do you enable the parents, and Bronwyn's a great example of how they've done that. And yeah, I think for us, uh, what, what we've really seen is that uh, we're trying to identify the specialty test and bring it down, uh, down to the, the, the other health constituents to allow them to get engaged. So in the U.S., there's 900 pediatric ophthalmologists, 900, that's it. And those are the individuals that actually really can understand and, and evaluate, do a full child, a workup of a child's vision. What we're trying to do is really build upon that objective test, allowing the, the, the primary care physician to have that ability to screen, but also enabling the other influences in that ecosystem. So what we've done is built a, an application that's leveraging commonly available technology, the camera's smartphone, the smartphone's uh, camera as well as the flash, and it's allowing, uh, in a simple, easy user interface, allowing those influencers to really screen that 80% of the population that isn't screened. And it's doing so in a way that's very intuitive, ease of use, um, low cost, and efficient. And that's really, I think, main barriers that we're seeing today. And that's allowing not only the uh, primary care physician, but the, uh, the, the school nurses, the screening companies, as well as the parent to be empowered. And, and just to put perspective on that, right? I mean, your, your eyes teach your brain how to think about seeing in the beginning of life. It's a critical period of development. If you don't learn how to think about seeing, you can't learn about the world, let alone be the person and the potential that you have. And, and I think some of these solutions as well, it's just a reminder, have wild, I mean, from a prevention standpoint, if you're interested in the quote unquote wellness space, there are diagnostic billing codes associated with screening vision. It brings me no joy to have my medical assistant delay a patient getting room because they're standing in the hallway looking at the E this way and the E that way and the E this way in a very ineffective, inaccurate way. If a family's given a smart tool and they can screen when they're worried about their child's vision or we direct them to do so in a way that's novel and the parent walks away with the information, everybody wins. You're contributing to care team joy. You're contributing to emancipating a family from feeling distanced from their own data. And you're motivating that parent to say, I got this data myself. I had a hunch my kid didn't see that well. Then I just got a screening that said they didn't. And then I'm just going to make sure my pediatrician knows it and go directly to the ophthalmologist. I do not need to see these kids who fail a vision screen at school in the office and bill my ins the insurance company 200 bucks for me to say I'm going to write this rec to go see an ophthalmologist. So that's decreasing friction for about four people at once. And, and I think that's a profound opportunity in PEDS. Yeah, and I, I think there, uh, when we talk about the long tail and, and who benefits most, it's really the parent is the one that's most motivated. Do you want to talk about dual design in any way? Or? 
Yeah, we, um, I can talk a little bit more about how, the way we think about this in Children's Hospital Colorado. We have been able to attract uh, some of the world's best pediatric experts to the campus. In partnerships with the CU School of Medicine and then the UCH health system that's on our campus, we have an opportunity to create innovations that span the continuum. Um, so we have physicianpreneurs. So Dr. Robin Dieterding, for example, medical director of innovation, has such a background and a passion, but needs to link up with entrepreneurs to take that passion to reality, to really impact the the three million kids that rely on us and potentially child health across the country. So as we design, uh, we think about the short term and what we can do, but also the long term in, in partnership with our campus partners. We are one of the only uh, places in the country where you can come and partner with a uh, ecosystem, and I'll call it that, uh, that has spans the lifespan within um, uh, the health lifespan. So we're really uh, unique in that way. And our design, um, sometimes it's pediatric specific, sometimes it's full lifespan, but we have that opportunity on our campus. Yeah, I, I can speak maybe. I, I mean, I think coming from the design process, you know, everybody in this room is familiar with design thinking. If you're not, you're in the wrong city. You know, when you start with empathy, don't forget the parent when you're, when you're designing for pediatrics. It's probably more important and more of a financial driver long-term um, another great example that came out of our program is a company called Lully, um, and what they're dealing with is sleep terrors. And, and sleep terrors, for anyone who's experienced, the, experienced them, are not medically dangerous, but they're very disruptive to parents, right? A kid wakes up, cannot be consoled, takes about half an hour to put him back down. You go tell your pediatrician who says, eh, it's normal, don't worry about it, right? Am I right? No, I mean, well, yeah. Or it's not I, normal, just, just but be really clear about, about the it. suffering that comes from a night terror, though. A, a night terror, it, your child looks possessed. We're talking about like Drew Barrymore, you know, like looking at the screen, like things are not looking okay. Your child doesn't respond to you. They don't, they, they're awake, but they're not really awake. And these can be wildly disruptive. They can happen on a nightly basis after the age of one. And typically you come to someone like me, you pay your, you, you take your day off work, you come in and I say, well, okay, until your kid's really older, we don't do this thing until we want you to kind of wake them up. So if they have a night terror at 11 o'clock at about 1045, go wake your kid up. You can imagine how fun that is, right? And then when, when you think they're having a secondary night terror at three, make sure you're waking up at 2.45 in the morning. So you not only disrupted a, a child's sleep, but maybe a parent and maybe a sibling who shares a room. Yeah, that's exactly right. And when we were in the empathy phase of this project, what we realized was that it's not actually a huge burden on the kid. I mean, you know, it's not a great experience, but they don't remember really, it happens usually. They don't even remember. They usually get a good night's sleep. It, the empathy is about the parent. And there's a clear solution, which is this pre-awakening, but it doesn't solve the parent's issue of not being able to sleep. So the companies basically come up with an autonomous system that does a pre-awakening, um, uses data to sort of predict when, when the um, terror is going to happen. They then pulled the great coup, thinking ahead of time, of FDA regulation, realized sleep isn't really that regulated, so they're below the radar. They hit a price point where parents are absolutely willing to pay for it in order to get a night, good night's sleep. Uh, and you know they've taken off five stars on Amazon, and it's just it's and really a great example of early empathy with the parent, leading to a great design, simple product that solves something that truthfully, the medical system didn't even really identify as an issue because they weren't really thinking about the parent here. Yeah, and they circumvented the pediatrician, and that's okay. Right? The pediatrician can hear about that in a wellness visit. The, the list of things that are covered in a wellness visit can be, you know, 15 to 20 and the drivers of what I'm supposed to get done in that. If someone says, I figured out a solution for my kid's night tear, you've actually checked the box for a care team and pediatrician in general too. So I, I think there's resistance that at first glance physicians will try to hold on to the paternity of caring for these. But as to Gil's point, as we really shift to managing populations and being reimbursed based on smarter population management and narrow casting 
interesting information. These kind of circumventing the parent, just like you know, ju just like the two of your solutions as well, or circumventing, excuse me, the pediatrician. If the pediatrician can be informed, either from a parent or digitally, great. But those don't be scared of those solutions. In fact, you should you should puff up your chest with them and just align yourselves with smart enough pediatricians who don't think they need to hold all of that. Should we move on to the next topic? We have a question from the audience. Do we have a microphone that, um, that's really exciting. We just innovated the panel that way. We didn't wait till the end. Um, yell it out. Yeah, you could just yell it out. I'll repeat it. Yeah, yeah do it. Here it comes. I've had the um, privilege of working with pediatricians for the last six years. Um, I came out of technology and now run operations for Allied Physicians Group in New York. And, um, uh, I guess it was Gil who mentioned earlier about taking risk with kids. And I, I'd like to, to see if we could just talk a little bit about that because I don't actually believe that we should be taking risks with kids. I think that we should be talking about it in a different terminology. Maybe it's doing investment in prevention. Most of the children that pediatricians see are healthy. And, and you know, the, it, we need to focus on prevention. So we talk about it just starts with a well visit. Um, get in, come in for that well visit every year. Uh, allow us to talk to, your, to the parent, allow us to talk to the child, and allow us to hit all the criteria that we're going to hit on, on a yearly basis. Great. Uh, let me reframe that. I, I wanna, uh, so first and foremost, I don't think anybody up here, nor any pediatrician, nor any, anyone involved in a children's hospital is interested in increasing risk to children's health. I think we're talking about the risk of not doing or the risk of doing, right? So I think that's the benefit of working with groups associated with something like Impact Peds Health. You're going to be in arm's reach of researchers and an IRB to ensure that we're not increasing risk to children. But the risk of non-doing is, I think, a bigger risk than the risk of doing and intervening while keeping the safety checks uh, in, in, in close quarters. So, um, and just to be clear, you, you, I think in, when you think about adults, you think about, oh yeah, you see your doctor once a year or maybe once every other year. Just to be clear, we see children for wellness visits, the highest billing reimbursement you can in pediatrics, nine times in the first year, four times in the second year, and then annualized thereafter. So there's a ton of opportunity. If you're looking for reimbursement with billing codes and ICD-10, don't forget about that penetrating time that we've got in that first year of life in that critical time period in a child's life. I, I but was, you guys talk I, about risk I was too. actually talking about um, um, financial risks and oh, risk-based fine, fine. Okay. Risk models, not, not quality That's risk. That's good. Okay, yeah. so talk about that. Yeah. So um, as you state, majority of the children are healthy. Um, the 10% that costs about 80% of our spend is what you're talking about. And so that's what we mean by risk is uh, we want to make sure that we, uh, first of all, children's hospitals are the place for those kids. And so from a financial modeling perspective, uh, we want to make sure we embrace that. And innovation is the only way that we're going to be able to care for those kids differently. So the, that 10% are the high utilizers. If we can keep them outside of our REDs, if we can care for them at the home, if we can use digital health instead of in-person health, that's how we're going to solve this risk-based uh, platform. So I think you're right. Prevention is obviously part of it, but um, focusing on that complex pediatric patient is really the sweet spot by which we're really looking for innovations and um, support and caring for that population. And Gil, do you want to talk technically about how you actually do a risk, how you take on population risk with peds? Because a couple of groups are doing it now. We're sort of 
testing the waters, but you guys are leading the way, right? Yeah, there's there's three or four models out there uh, around the country, and basically what happens is you go to a payer or population, oftentimes Medicaid. Most children's hospitals across the country have approximately 50% of their patients on Medicaid, so government insurance, and you ask them if you, uh, you work with them to carve out pediatrics to where they pay you a uh, bundled payment, essentially, uh, to care for a population. So if the risk, um, so the risk on the hospital's perspective or the provider perspective is if they utilize, overutilize your healthcare, uh, then you are um, going to potentially be at financial risk. If you underutilize and you manage uh, the appropriate level of care, then you could be financially viable in that case. Um, again, you can see the importance of why technology is critical in doing that, um, especially if you think about that population who has social determinants of health that don't prevent, don't, don't allow them uh, or don't uh, enable them to uh, optimize their healthcare. Really, really important. So it's it's all about uh, developing a model that incentivizes prevention and uh, keeping kids out. Um, and no longer are we looking for fee-for-service where we get paid for every single kid. We're looking to um, mitigate that risk uh, leveraging technology. Yeah, and I think asthma is a great example of that, where if it's fee-for-service, then you know, a patient coming into the emergency room, you make money off that. If you're at risk, then it really is emphasizing control, making sure they're on the right amount of medication, making sure they're actually taking it. And if that means an intervention, you know, in the home, completely separate from the clinical practice, then an at-risk model is gonna choose that while a fee-for-service isn't. I think there was a Rodrigo, question. do you have a question? Yeah, and I, I think one of the things, and I, James, I'd love you to talk about this too, that, you know, um, being fortunate enough to, to work at Seattle Children's and having stood up the Center for Digital Health and trying to get outside solutions in, many of our hospitals don't mobilize a lot of resources and funding. I mean, we've got cans and coins rolling around. So the opportunity of folks like you who are connected to bigger pockets and connected potentially to faster and agile fundraising is fund things because the resource and the pockets that are filled from working with hospital systems just provide a, a different benefit. But hospitals won't move a lot of money to fund pilots. So know that you need to kind of ready up um, to fund and facilitate, but you will get so much more back, I think, in learning even about risk stratification and, and the different milieus. But these hospitals um, and the researchers there and the patients and families there can, can really help. But you're going to have to mobilize money that way. And do you want to talk about that? Well, let's take Rodrigo's question and then you can talk about it. Thank you. I'm Rodrigo Martinez with Veritas Genetics. So the question is, Absolutely agree. Better screening tools for parents. As a parent, as a designer, absolutely. Uh, and Craig alluded to this yesterday. Many of our customers that come to have the genome sequenced want to sequence their kid. And they're like, hey, if I want to know for me, more importantly, I want to know for him or her, and they're healthy, but this is the best one of these screening tools that we should be getting. So my question to you is, when do you think there's going to be a shift to understanding that sequencing early might be very important as a screening tool, and when and how do you think that happening in some of your institutions? Well, I, I mean, I can take that on from the design perspective is when you know what you're going to do about it, right? I mean, you've got to think about what you're going to do about it, and I know you guys have thought deeply about that, but there, you know, there has to be something actionable with Anytime you're designing screening or, or diagnostics, you're sort of held to this, you have to think about the second and third stage, and you're often not in control of that second and third stage, right? You are not the person who is necessarily acting on it. So I think that's the big challenge of any screen that you design is what's going to be done about it? Do you have clear insight into that? And can you kind of affect some control over it 
because if you don't, you're, you're a bit at, at, at the mercy of the system for that. So, Gil, I think you have some thoughts here. Yeah, so um, it's all about clinical validation. And so, um, uh, University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, uh, what we try and do there, we have uh, over $100 million worth of pediatric research happening on that campus today. All those skill sets and understanding um, how to manage that book of business transfers to the innovation space very easily. What, uh, and some of us were at CES just before this, and uh, while there were so many cool things in the healthcare space, the clinical validation and making sure that you identify the outcomes that you're striving for and to uh, be able to replicate and scale is where we are looking forward to working with startup health and entrepreneurs um, in startup health to do that together. And so I think that's a really important piece. Uh, while there's a lot of really neat things going on there, uh, precision medicine is very important to us uh, for the reasons you stated, but we have to clinically validate and create use cases that make sense for everybody. Right, and that's what we're excited to do. That's what we want to do as children's hospitals, as the leading children's hospitals, is work with groups like yours who have the technologies to do use cases, to look where the value proposition is, and to help you build that. I mean, we're, that's what we want to do. We're not great at incubating and starting companies and doing it internally, I'll be honest. We're, we're, we're just not great at that. A lot of people are thinking about it, we're but not, we're not yeah, great. Yeah. Well, so, and, and hospitals, hospital, we, boards, we is, hospital yeah. boards aren't necessarily endorsing right. software design and, and invention. They're saying, we deliver healthcare. That's what we do, right? right? Those are the original mission statements of these organizations in tip. In tip. So I want to clarify something you said earlier uh, about the funding mechanism. While I think traditionally you're absolutely right, hospitals were not necessarily an investor, uh, that's changing. I think you'll see over the next three to five years, hospitals creating more of their investment accounts. And so don't think of us as only a clinical validation tool. Think of us as an investment partner potentially as well. Hospitals have to put money where their mouth is. Uh, we're going to invest collectively as well. Um, but you're right, majority don't have that currently in space, but you'll see... Um, this is a very popular space in pediatrics, and so uh, more investment funds will be uh, available to support the ideas that we develop together. Yeah, I mean, I just visited University of, of or, um, Miami Children's last week, and they've stood up a venture fund. They've spun out four companies already. They've created a separate entity from the hospital, and the campus is kind of right next door for that. So, so you're right. Thank you. Well, you know, as we're talking about the investment side, I think for uh, our company in particular, we, we've um, gone through a Series B and, and really we talked about the profile of, of what investors are looking for. So I know there's a few individuals in here that have early stage companies. And I think for us, what was um, successful that we saw was the diversification of our model and in that um, we're, we're, we're focused on disease management. We've gone after the pediatric market because we actually see a significant void in terms of an unmet need. We see an opportunity to treat a broad population, but we're using our technology across uh, the disease, and that's around vision. And I think that's also critical when we're talking about the stage of companies and, and potential investors. They want to see that diversification as well. Can I, just to your point, I was just thinking about Craig's response yesterday about early detection screening. Kind of what, how do we define? I mean, I, I had done a master's degree in bioethics and have thought a lot about kind of vulnerability, but back to this vulnerability, I mean, human body, so a, a pregnant mom delivers a baby and then breastfeeds a baby. We recommend the intervention of vitamin D for that baby. It, it, you know, biologically, we were based that mom bleeds herself of her own vitamin D, gives it to her baby, right? We will do anything for our children, right? We will typically self-sacrifice most anything for our children. Um, and I think to the point of early screening, early information, and, and housing a huge data set, um, there's something called the vulnerable child syndrome. And, and I, I mean this sincerely. Uh, you, you, it isn't just pushing a ton of information about a child when we don't have clinical validation of what we do with that. And there's a group called My46 um, that comes out of the University of Washington, funded by and run by a PhD in somaticists as well, that's even thinking about how do we even create, if you get a genetic screening back, how do we even let people create a schema of 
what kind of information do they want to know about their baby and what kind of information don't they, right? So, and I think that's different again, because again, we've got, it's a proxy environment of which the parent is getting data on a different individual than themselves, right? And so I, I think that, that before you just think of like pushing forward of just getting a massive amount of data to a parent, we know, for example, like sleep monitors, there isn't a single study. Think of the market for sleep monitors at nighttime, of which many of you have. There's even recently a $1,600 smart crib, right, that keeps your baby happy at night and rocks them to sleep and thinks about them and iterates that. The robo mom, per se, at nighttime. And we know not a single study that an overnight sleep monitor decreases the likelihood of an events of SIDS, the number one killer of kids under age one. So we have a business that's been built entirely based on the fear of your kids stopping breathing, and the intervention has no clinical validation. But the pulse of the community is, I'm scared about my baby. And so we don't want to increase fear by pushing a bunch of data and actually redirecting money and resources from poor people's pockets who buy sleep monitors who don't need them. And, and I think that, as a corollary, you just have to keep in mind that that clinical validation um, is so exquisitely important when protecting children. Do we have any more questions? Or we can move on to other stuff. Thank you. First off, thank you very much for your time. My name is Dave Healy, and I'm with UC Health. And I have kind of a broader question. Going back to Gil's point about the health span, we're talking right now about providing optimal care for children from uh, age one, or is it age zero to age 18? But we also have a simultaneous movement of adult care. How do we make sure as both providers, but also innovators, that we're making that transition once they receive the best care in a children's hospital as optimal and as warm of a handoff as possible? Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's not easy, especially the way um, oftentimes children's hospitals are separate from adult hospitals. And so um, we have a unique situation since we're on the same campus. It makes it a lot easier. That being said, we also have a seven-state region that relies on us. And so those three million kids, we have partnerships with adult hospitals in those states that allow us to create that transitions of care. Not easy, but uh, something that, again, technology and innovation can help us do. And that, to me, presents opportunity. I think that um, while that's a difficult problem, um, it is ripe for innovation and systems and technology and software that allows us to manage that population collectively, especially when you're talking about a region like ours that's literally uh, seven states that uh, require, and it's not so easy to get to our hospital from, say, Montana, as an example. And so very important um, opportunity for innovation. I just yep. thinking you could talk about your valve story about, I mean, ultimately I think too, you know, when you grow a pediatric practice, you typically grow your practice as the children grow. Um, so to, to echo that, I think there's a phenomenal opportunity in the handoff from pediatric subspecialists to adult subspecialists and things even like cystic fibrosis. I mean, those patients and families don't want to leave their pediatric pulmonologist. They've had them for their lifespan to that yeah. point. But can I, uh, but I just uh, want Let me make one point then. I'll, okay, yeah. Because uh, Brahman's story is really good, but you know, the, the technology is agnostic, right? We have this like, somewhat ridiculous arbitrary barriers at 16 or 18 or whatever it is where you transition from a pediatric to an adult hospital, but 2EO is agnostic. You take that system with you and you deliver it to your next provider. And I think that's a real key, right? Like the technology that's helping you stay healthy can be translated much easier than, frankly, our paper records and all the nonsense that goes along with the healthcare system. But, and a lot of technology developed for kids will become important for adults, and I think Brahman's got some good examples of that. Yeah, I, th I think that's great. So when people are designing for pediatrics or thinking about it, everyone thinks about all the challenges, that you know everything has to be smaller, uh, the longevity is big, that if you're you know, implanting something, well, hopefully they're going to live decades longer than an adult. So there are lots of very specific, concrete challenges, but I think it's important to also realize that sometimes it's actually easier. And a great example that I like for that is the transcatheter valves. So the first transcatheter valve 
um, that was made for the pulmonary valve was invented by a pediatric cardiologist. And it was invented for children who had a very specific congenital heart disease where you have surgery early on and then you require a pulmonary valve, uh, you know, early, you know, around age 10 or so. And usually you have to go and have open heart surgery and get that valve placed. So he designed the transcatheter valve for that population, a small population that, you know, business model wouldn't work for that, but it's a lot easier than designing for an aortic valve where the pressures are a lot higher. So it was a perfect stepping stone to then get the transcatheter aortic valves that are, you know, huge market in adults. So, you know, I think it's important that pediatrics aren't an afterthought, that we should always be thinking about them and think that sometimes there are times where it's actually best to design initially for them and prove something out in that population and then go on to next. Sometimes it's not, sometimes it's you know challenging and you do the adults and then need to think about pediatrics, but it isn't always. And so making sure that we're always thinking about children anytime we're making a solution for something that is a disease state that, that is applicable to children, think about it early on, even if you don't design for it yet. That brings me to, I'd love for any of you to comment on this, but I think sometimes a hesitancy or a barrier to entry in the pediatric space is that, you know, a, a child's body surface area changes dramatically through childhood. Their needs between infancy, toddlerhood, preschool years, school age, teen, and then young adulthood are very different. So I'd love for you, James, in, in particular, and the, and the two of you, and, and Gil, please chime in of, what are some success stories or what are some design philosophies that help a company not get intimidated in the fact that the solution needs to be different for a one-year-old versus an eight-year-old versus an 18-year-old? What does what what help, help with that? Well, I mean, you've got one sitting right in front of you. I mean, I, I really, I think Tuyo is a great example um, where, you know, their design thinking around this involved a lot of, wow, we've got an opportunity here because the child at different ages can be monitored in different ways, but essentially they're in a crib or bed, it's a single person, right? We don't have the issue of dealing with two people that we have to figure out like who to monitor. Um, and you know, that one's a good example. I think generally speaking, you know, anything has just gotta be empathy to that moment. And I, you know, age, talk about it, Bronwyn. Do you think age really drove a lot of what you did or was it something that was, you could really, because in your case, I really felt like we could go all the way across childhood with a single design. Yeah, it, so I did the Biodesign Fellowship, which uh, James is a part of leading, and it's needs-based innovation, and so we spent a while assessing needs, and asthma came out as an important need, and the lack of these objective indicators, and, you know, of course, I'm biased towards pediatrics, and uh, as I just said, that I like to always think, would this be a good option, and, and in this case, as James was alluding to, it actually was the perfect population to start with, because they sleep alone in the bed. The sensors, I think, in the next year, uh, you know, or maybe two, will be able to deal with two adults in the bed, but for right now, it's better with one, and then in addition, pediatrics in general, don't have other comorbidities. So, you know, I bet in the future, we're gonna be able to have someone who has asthma or COPD and heart failure and, you know, be able to use this type of physiologic monitoring, but to try to start with that, uh, you know, no thank you. Let's start with the pediatric population. So it really, it doesn't need to, it just happened to be because we were thinking about peds as an option, that that turned out to be the best population to start with. And I think it's, you know, benefits children in that case. And then absolutely, we can move on to more challenging. In this case, the adults are more challenging. 
Yeah, I, I can say for us, we actually went after the niche of, of children with uh, our, our technology. It's, it's, it's actually um, probably a more complicated base because of two things. One, the, the science of how our application works is, is using a camera flash and, and um, the camera lens itself and the angle you come in at. But probably the actual uh, factor that you probably uh, would think of as little impact actually allowed us to develop a really, I think, better user experience. We have kids that are moving around and you're trying to take their photo. And so we had to be able to take a photo quickly, stabilize the camera. And a lot of that technology is actually now being used so that we could allow for consumers to adopt it for using it with their children, but also allowing them to use it for themselves. So I think uh, the, the, the golden nugget there was uh, we were working with a harder population, a population that was also physically changing as well, and we had to adapt. So it's, it's a, it was a great opportunity. We're going to end this panel with a little bit of, um, hopefully this is like a gust of wind. I mean, I think we ultimately need some bravery. And, and to, to echo uh, Vice President Joe Biden yesterday, like, what the hell are we doing? That this is as bad as it is. And I'd love each of the panelists to go through and just talk about, kind of in, in a closing moment, um, what can you give this audience um, to inspire a little bit more bravery in how you go forth when you leave today thinking about your opportunity with children and their families? Um, so the biggest clinical challenge I face is intervening very early in life, either fetal surgery or newborn babies who are very sick. And I am willing to take the risk as an individual provider to try and help that kid. I, I just, I wish the system beyond that would take that same approach to healthier children to keep them healthy. You know, we as clinicians will take every risk we can to help the sickest kids. We need to keep um, healthy kids healthy and the technology's there. We need people who can figure out smart models to do it um, and smart approaches to it. So I would ask for you all to join us. We are um, at a uh, inflection point in child health, and um, we are looking for the best and brightest ideas. You know, we at the on campus have now an infrastructure by which we can support you. When we make a commitment to those entrepreneurs that we uh, collaborate with, we are committed, and we're going to solve child health together. And so, uh, through our relationship with CU Innovations and Startup Health, uh, please reach out to us as you have ideas. We will uh, vet and I, I identify based on priorities, and those who uh, we commit to we will commit and we will solve child health together. For us, I, it's, it's very clear that the challenge we, we are seeing that's greatest is around access. And it really requires the ability for uh, a, a whole health ecosystem to come together. And for us, um, we really just look at it for our company. We look at it as saying we want to create brighter futures. But what the commitment has to be across the ecosystem is it innovating for tomorrow. So I'll just re-echo what I was saying before that, it, you know, in general, in our lives, children aren't an afterthought. They're often, you know, the top priority or, uh, you know, a focus. And why is it that in health and in innovation, they are an afterthought that you go for adults first and then, oh, okay, can we address children? So what can we do so that pediatrics are not an afterthought? Well, join us on this rocket ride. Uh, we're really thankful with Impact Peds and our kind of growing partnership with Startup Health. And don't hesitate to reach out to any of us and anyone in Impact Peds um, to think about how to dialogue about these problems. Remember that pediatricians are really nice uh, and they work their, their little tushies off. So our, our batteries are charged and we're ready. And um, thank you so much for joining us today with this Moonshot session.